This is Momming While Feminist. We're here to have authentic, open-minded, hopeful, and maybe even helpful conversation about being a mom in a world where gender inequality and misogyny are everywhere. We want our parenting decisions to reflect our values as feminists, but that's not easy, so we need to talk about it. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Lisa. And I'm Lindsay. I have two sons, ages five and seven, and a daughter, age two. And I have two daughters, ages three and six. Welcome, everyone, to Momming Well Feminist. This week, we are expanding our conversation about children's books to talk about diversity in children's literature. And we have a really exciting guest with us today, Laura Grupo. Um, we've been sharing yay. a lot of, yay, Laura. Uh, we've been sharing a, a lot of Laura's posts on Instagram lately uh, from her account, Laura's Little Bookshelf. And so we invited her on our podcast, and we're so excited that she agreed to join us. Yes. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on today. Um, I love your podcast, and I'm just excited to share a little bit uh, more of, of my perspective, and hopefully it will be helpful. Yeah, a little about Laura. So Laura was born and raised in New York City, but now lives in Northern Virginia with her husband and their two young daughters. She received a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and is currently a grad student in the online Master of Library and Information Science degree program at San Jose State University. She hopes to work in youth services, librarianship, after obtaining her degree. She's a passionate advocate for family literacy, early childhood education, book access, and diversity in children's literature. She also runs the growing Instagram account at Laura's Little Bookshelf, which is dedicated to showcasing high-quality, diverse picture books and promoting youth literacy. So welcome again, Laura. Yeah, anything else you want to add to that? Um, that that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> awesome. So we we start each of our um, interview guest interview episodes with a few rapid fire get to know you questions. So um, I will read them out. I'd love to hear what your answers are. So the first one: the fictional character that best represents your parenting style is uh, Regina George's mom from Mean Girls. <laughs> I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. (laughs) I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. That's not, that's not like me at all. I think I would say that I aspire to be like mom tiger from Daniel tiger. I don't know if you have Daniel tiger fans in your house, but she is just the most calm, patient, loving person. Well, tiger. She's always, you know, got an inspirational lesson and song form to deliver uh, and just she's also a carpenter, which is so cool. So, you know, if I could be a fictional character mom, I would really love to channel her. Yeah, may we all have the patience of Daniel Tiger's mom. (laughs) 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 Okay, so next question. When my kids are grown, I will not miss... The rigid schedules. I'm a big believer in children uh, needing structure and routine and nap time and bedtime routines at the same time every day. I've been, I have been called rigid over it. <laughs> um, that's the nice way of saying it. And, you know, I'm definitely that person where if someone wants to do something between the hours of one and three during the week, you know, my husband is working, obviously, you know, he's got this handled right now. Um, but I'm 
just like, no, it's nap time. It's yeah. not that that's not happening. And I definitely, um, it's, it's hard for me because I know that it's, that it's good for them. Both of my kids really thrive on routine, but I just am definitely looking forward to the day of, uh, you know, just more spontaneity yeah. and being able to say, Hey, we can stay up late. We can watch a movie at night, you know, yeah. we can go to this event that's happening in the afternoon. Like it's just the same time every day with the naps and everything like that that it's just it's, it makes it hard to get things yeah, done yeah so, absolutely um, especially with I will little definitely I think I will not miss that part yeah I hear that okay so next question why didn't someone tell me about from a parenting perspective I really wish that uh, more people had talked about Emily Oster the, the Brown professor um, and her books expecting better and crib sheet they're basically about the science of pregnancy and parenting and all of the uh, all of the the myths or exaggerations that new parents particularly new moms are told about being pregnant or having a baby and all of the um, all of the things that we are basically told to worry about and the scientific reasoning behind whether or not we actually have to worry about these things and, you know, all the anxiety that comes along with them, like drinking caffeine and coffee yeah. and how it's actually not that serious to drink, to drink only a little bit of caffeine or avoid caffeine while you're pregnant, things like that, that just new moms and first time moms especially are just freaking out about because you know they read all these articles saying this xyz is bad don't do right. this thing but it, there's no they don't know why there's no there's never any explanation for for why right. this is bad or what the actual risk is there's a lot of unnecessary worry and anxiety that comes along with being a new parent and i think that it's really great yeah. that there's a movement towards exposing some of these you know these exaggerations and myths and and really digging into the science behind why we can kind of just relax a little bit right. anything that's helping new parents relax yes. <laughs> it's great you know because really. we have so much to yeah. worry about as it is we're always worrying it's like you know yes. just, just give us a reason to take a breath <laughs> yeah I hadn't heard of those books so Emily Oster uh, expecting better and crib sheet Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. she now has a weekly email and there's a lot of coronavirus information in there. Yes. She's just basically awesome. the queen of, of digging into why the why that often gets ignored. Oh, I may have seen some of her coronavirus stuff. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you. Okay. And so when I look into my children's eyes, I see. I see a lot of imagination and wonder, and it's great. I just love, so my, my older, older daughter is, uh, she'll be three in a few weeks, and my youngest is going to be seven months old in a couple days, and uh, they just are so sweet together. I love seeing their imaginations really starting to take shape. I mean, in the youngest one, it really looks like, you know, going through the pages of a, of a board book and chewing on it or, you know, uh, seeing a toy pop out like a jack-in-the-box type toy and just seeing her eyes light up like, yeah. wow, this is a cool thing I've never seen. You know, this is a flower. This is a tree. Like, this is, you know, this is the world. It's just amazing. You know, everything is so new to them. I just love seeing her baby's eyes light up. And for my 
preschooler, it's really just, you know, she's really making a lot of connections with the books we read and everyday life. And, you know, she'll play pretend and pretend she's a character in a story that we read. And even, you know, one from a few weeks or a few months ago, it's like she files things away in her mind and is just developing such a robust imagination and unique perspective on the world. It's so interesting to see how she interprets things and brings characters into her games and just how her mind works. It's just really cool to see these people that you made really start to take shape. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. The things you learn from their their own imagination. Yeah, it's wonderful. It really makes you pause for a second and think about, you know, what you're teaching them and how they got to think about things a certain way and how you can work with that and mold that. Yeah, totally. Okay, and then our last question, do you identify as a feminist and why or why not? I definitely do, for sure, Um, you know, especially as a a mom of girls. But I think I'd like to think even if I was a mom of boys, you know, that it would be the same way. And I I do know a lot of feminist moms of boys, too, and dads of of boys and girls. And I think that uh, being a feminist is great. You know, I I want my girls to grow up knowing that they can just be whoever they are and, and do what they want to do and go after their dreams and that their their stories are worthy of being told and heard and that they have a, a powerful voice. And I think that, that those are really important lessons uh, that we can teach to all our children. And it's I'm trying to be a role model for that and hopefully we'll be successful in that endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you so much. So it's time for our feminist crush, a person, place, thing, um, piece, news, or quote that you love for its pro-feminist vibe. It can be anything you like. I'll go first. My feminist crush is timely because given the topic of today's episode, she is Marley Diaz. I first heard about her. Oh my when, gosh, that was, yeah, you that heard was of her? Who, that was awesome. who I picked also. No way. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, then I'm going to let you talk about her. Go ahead, Laura. Go Who's your it. feminist crush I, of the is week? Is that okay? Yeah, was, what are the chances? And then I realized with the bookmarks uh, being, you know, having just come out, I was like, oh, you know, there is a chance that we might all want to talk about Marley Diaz. So. But wait, you have to tell me. I don't know who she is. Now I feel left out. Who is she? Okay. Right, you so, take it. Uh, are you sure? Yes. I feel bad because you're the host. So, I mean, okay. No, no. I'd but, much rather hear it from you. So Marley Diaz, she is 15 years old now. And when she was 10 in 2015, she started the uh, 1000 Black Girl Books movement, which was basically her goal was to, uh, she noticed growing up that uh, most of the books that she was assigned to read in school or that were in her uh, classroom library were about white children, usually white boys, and um, there's just the same books over and over again that her parents and grandparents had been taught in school, and she uh, really wanted to shake things up and just see more books that featured Black children, particularly Black girls, as the main characters. So she, uh, because she realized that it was important for, for Black children to see themselves in uh, in represented in literature, and that just wasn't happening in the current landscape. So she wanted to collect a thousand books, a thousand children's books featuring black girls. And she actually wound up collecting, 
I think 9,500 books at the, at the last count. But I mean, that was uh, uh, several years ago that I watched this TV interview. So I have no idea how many it is now, but she wanted to collect them and distribute them into different communities. I think she distributed them to a school in Jamaica because her, her mother is from Jamaica. And, you know, even in, in communities that are predominantly black schools are still giving books that feature white characters that don't reflect the, the experiences of the black children who live there, you know, it's definitely not a, not a mirror um, experience. So she collected a lot of books, um, and then she launched this. Uh, so, so she launched this campaign, um, which has really uh, taken off in the years since, and has a list of resources and everything on the site um, for finding. Uh, books that feature Black girls, and now she's hosting the show Bookmarks on Netflix, which is celebrities reading aloud books that feature Black children, and it's it's really cool. It's just a very high-quality show, you know, with a read-aloud in the background. They, they blow up the book so that it's a big background in the screen and they flip the pages and stuff, so it's not just them, like, reading the book in front of the screen. It's like you can see all the pictures of the book and... There are some very cool celebrities on there. She wrote a book, too. Uh, that was a guide to activism. Marley yeah. Diaz gets it done. Awesome. And so and so the show just came out September 1st? Yes. Very cool. Well, My Feminist Crush is also a ne- new Netflix show. It is called Emily's Wonder Lab. And it's a science show uh, for kids led by Emily, um, who's a scientist. And she is a woman and she's pregnant when filming this show. And it's just so fun and so cool. And apparently the, the story goes is that she had pitched a science show to many large science networks for a while. But often they would say the majority of our audience is male and we don't think they'd relate to a female host. So no one picked it up until Netflix picked it up. Um, and then she filmed it while she was pregnant. And it's really funny because in like the first episode, there's, <laughs> there's a, uh, one of, there's a bunch, there's a few kids in the, that do the show with her. And one of the boys is like, I thought I knew everything about science, but now I know Emily knows a lot more. And I was like, did you do that? Did they do that intentionally? Because like, they think the boys <laughs> think they know so much more about science. They like don't want to learn from a, from a female host. But anyways, it's a really great show. Um, we watched it for the first time today and my kids love it. So Emily's Wonder Lab on Netflix. That sounds really fun. That's awesome. All right, next. Great. So before we start our conversation, we just want to continue our practice where in every episode we call attention to something that is happening in the movement for Black Lives and Liberation. Today, we encourage our listeners to research the murder of Daniel Prude. He's another Black man who was held down on the pavement by police until he stopped breathing. There are places to donate to support protesters with food, water, medical bills, and bail bonds. Um, those are Venmo um, accounts, so we'll share those in our show notes. I have a note that I have found the uh, the anti-racism daily Instagram account slash newsletter to be extremely helpful. Um, it's run by Nicole Cardoza, and... It's at anti-racism daily on Instagram and you can sign up via email for the newsletter. But basically every day during the week, you get background information and a concrete set of actions that you can take to combat racism. So definitely would recommend checking that out for really tangible ideas that you can put into practice. 
Laura, thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. thank you. We'll put a link to that. So at anti-racism daily, we'll put a link to that on our, on our, in our show notes as well. Thank you, Laura. So a few weeks ago, we released an episode about sexism in children's books, and we wanted to expand on that conversation to talk not only about sexism in books, but like dig deeper into issues of diversity in children's literature. And so, um, again, we um, saw Laura's uh, Instagram account, and she shares some really fantastic books. And so we wanted to invite her here to talk to us about um, issues of diversity in children's books. So... Laura, can you tell us a little bit about Laura's Little Bookshelf, why you started it, and how you came to be to be doing what you do? I sure can. Um, I've always been a huge believer um, in the importance of early childhood literacy and family literacy and reading books uh, with your children. And if you work with children, um, if you're a teacher or a librarian reading books with your students, I'm in school right now to become a librarian and in particular a children's librarian. So uh, it's obviously, you know, something that I've deemed to be my professional calling. I'm a mother of two young kids right now. So it's uh, really important to me in our daily life to incorporate uh, literature. You know, we try to sit down and read uh, at least a few books a day. Um, and even growing up, my mother... Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a multiracial black woman. My mother is white. My father is black. And growing up, there really were not, I mean, even, you know, as we know today, there are still relatively not that many books that feature children of color. Um, and when I was growing up in the 90s, it was even fewer books. <laughs> and my parents, you know, to their credit, were very conscious of raising us to experienced books and toys that affirmed Black children and, you know, so that we were able to see families that looked like us in stories they really, you know, scoured wherever they could find to find Black dolls and stories that featured uh, Black families or multiracial families. Um, so it was definitely something that I was always conscious of growing up. And as an adult, you know, I married a white man, so we're raising a multiracial family. And, it was just very important to me for my children to see that there are people of all different skin colors, there are people of all different religions and backgrounds um, and abilities and all different kinds of family structures and that not everyone is the same and not everyone uh, is going to be a white suburban family or an animal like it's portrayed in a lot of children's books um it's not that's not a reflection of uh you know of of our real life of our real world and i've shared a an infographic and statistic that I, that has really made the rounds over the past couple of years about uh, it's from the cooperative children's book center out of the university of wisconsin at madison and it's about the 2018 publishing statistics for children's books and the the statistics are just you know kind of wild that 50% of the books that were published that they that they researched featured a white main character and 27% uh, featured animals as the main character. And then for, you know, the, for minorities, the, the numbers were just so low, you know, 10% African or African-American, 7% Asian Pacific Islander and Asian Pacific American, 5% Latinx, and then 1% Indigenous American or First Nation. So it's just so small, you know, and you see accounts like mine that feature predominantly characters that come from these backgrounds 
And you would think that there is a ton of books, but when you really see the numbers compared to the amount of books that are published every year, it, you can see what a small percentage it truly is. And so, you know, friends were asking me about recommendations for children's books, and I literally have all these books sitting around in my house. And it wasn't until July of this year where I was finally like, you know what, I'm going to share these. I should share these books because people will read these books if they know that they're out there. People want to read them. They want to see books that feature characters that look like them and their families. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take what I know and what I have. I'm not sponsored by anybody. So it's authentic. These are all, you know, books that I've bought for my family. So I just wanted to, it really just was born out of wanting to share what I know with people. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so great about it is, is your, um, your descriptions too. Like that your descriptions are really succinct and helpful to as as we're scrolling through like some of the uh, some other accounts you know there'll be like a list of like this is a list of diverse children's books and like with one line but I just really appreciate that the, the descriptions you have on there too I try to um, you know as part of my uh, professional preparation I have I've been a children's library volunteer and my biggest the highest compliment was when someone would mistake me for a real 100% full-fledged librarian. But, you know, I, I really try. Reader's Advisory is really my jam. And, you know, I really try to get a succinct blurb down so that people, you know, you can capture people's attention because Instagram especially is all about like instant gratification, right? And it's like, if I don't tell someone in the first yes. sentence why they should read this book, then I've already lost them. So, you know, it, they're just going to keep scrolling by. So I like yeah. to try and grab people's attention. It's definitely, it's, a, it's an, an art form that constantly needs to be uh, honed. Yeah. Um, how do you decide to include a book when it isn't your identity? Like, are you using a certain criteria? Are you, What lens are you bringing to books when you're trying to bring in maybe a window instead of a mirror? Mm -hmm. um, well, I usually try to uh, only feature books that have been pretty well vetted by, you know, various sources. I find books from a lot of different sources, and um, a lot of them are from authors that come from that background or they're an own voices type of book. So they are written by an author um, and oftentimes illustrated by an illustrator that come from that background or identify with that specific identity. So that's always great when you can find an own voices book um, because that, you know, just adds another layer of authenticity to the experience. But, you know, a lot of the times um, you can just search when when I when I pick a book I like to search and discover if there's been any controversy over it um, or any you know debunking of stereotypes that's occurred you know from people who have read the book who are from that group if the author is not from that group sometimes it's really surprising like I'll I'll, I'll look for a book the example that I'll use is Arrow to the Sun, which is, you know, it brands itself as a Pueblo Indian tale by Gerald McDermott. And I I was reading it, I was like, okay, this isn't this is supposedly an ancient Pueblo Indian legend. So maybe, you know, maybe I'll want to look at that. Maybe I'll want to feature it. And then I was researching it. And basically, a lot of different American Indian websites were in blogs had reviewed the book and said that you know that 
that a lot of it was inaccurate, that, you know, a lot of the themes and motifs that were present in the book are, were, were just not authentic to Pueblo Indian life. And it was just, it was very eye-opening to see it just because a book brands itself a certain way or may have won a medal. I believe it had won a Caldecott medal for illustration. And, you know, just, just because a book is award-winning doesn't necessarily mean that it's authentic um, and there could be some mistakes. So I think, you know, nowadays, especially a lot of authors, if they're not part of the community that they're telling a story about, they do try to research and actually talk to members of that community. So I think that's definitely something that uh, seems to have improved over time because that book was from, uh, from a long time ago. There were there were a couple concepts that you've mentioned, and I'm wondering if we want to if we we went over those too quickly. If we want to define those, like the the mirrors and windows. I know you are both at least as an educator, and you're a librarian, so I know you both know what those are. But I'm not sure that everybody does. So could you explain that? Like, what is the, what does the mirrors and windows mean? What's the symbolism there? So the whole uh, the whole symbolism of mirrors and windows is just the idea that children should be able to see stories that accurately represent their experiences in their life and um, being able to see themselves in a story and bond with a story and relate to the characters and feel that their story is, is one that's worthy of being heard and told. So it acts as a mirror, like a reflection of their life. And a window would be really like looking in, being in, being kind of an, being on the outside of an identity. So not identifying with that group or that identity yourself, but being able to uh, use this book as a lens to look through and see what people who do identify as part of that group or part of that identity, um, what their experiences are from a really authentic perspective um, and get a better idea and not uh, be a victim to stereotyping. And then the other concept I wanted to ask about is own voices. Look, can I just own- say one thing? Sure. Because I want to give credit where credit is due. So that phrase is from Windows, Mirrors, and I think it's also like screen doors is from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. So I just want to name. Thank you. Um, The other concept is own voices. And so I know I've seen this a lot lately and I know it's, it's like a hashtag, but could you, and so, and then you, you alluded to what it means, but could you just talk a little bit more about, or just say it again and and like, it's like a movement, right? Yeah. So it's really just, you know, making sure that, people have the opportunities to tell their own stories um, and that stories aren't kind of just being co-opted by because because a lot of that I guess I'll I'll preface it with a background you know that we have a history especially uh, in this country of people of of people who have a marginalized identity of their stories kind of being co-opted by white authors white filmmakers um, and kind of being told through that lens because those are the, you know, historically the, the, the points of view that we have been the most exposed to in our culture, you know, in schools growing up, you you read the classics by who all tend to be by white authors for the most part. Um, You know, you read, you watch movies, you know, by filmmakers that tend to be white for the most part. It's not, you know, it's not people who are from, uh, you know, who who are 
black or native american or latinx or asian they you know they're they're not getting the chance or historically have not gotten the chance to tell their own stories and have them widely picked up by the media so now the own voices movement is basically geared toward making sure people who are from the identities of the group that they're writing about are actually having the chance to tell their own stories and their authentic experiences so i mean there's like a, one of one of the books that I featured recently, uh, which is in my Anana's Amautic, um, is by an Inuit author, um, and actually the whole publishing house, uh, which is called Inhabit Media, is focused around celebrating Inuit authors and letting them tell their stories about their own experiences. It's not to say that you can't write a book if you're not part of that community about that community, but it definitely gives you a different layer of authenticity and a different perspective if you've actually, if you're actually a part of that community. Yeah. Okay. Um, can I, can we shout out the originator of that term, that hashtag? Yeah. Well, who is it? So the originator of that hashtag is um, Corinne Dalvis. And she has a website called Disability and Kid Lit, which focuses on the portrayal of disability in kids literature. Awesome. Thank you. So, okay. Our next question is, you mentioned, I think you mentioned white animals. So like animals that are portrayed as being white. Is that what you said? Or is it white people and animals? White people and animals. I'm sorry, that might have just been a misspeaking on my part. Well, <laughs> they have me just r- rushing it together, but what I was just referring to white people and animals because, okay. for the most part, the main characters in children's books have been in order white people and followed by animals before you get to any other yeah. race of child being depicted as the protagonist in a children's book. So it's just, you know, I feel that a lot of kids grow up and they see the default as being white children or animals in every book, you know, or a white child and their animal. Yeah. The reason I ask is I wasn't sure if that was because I know like in, in TV shows and stuff, a lot of times you can tell by the voices if they're trying to portray the animal as being through like accents and whatnot, a being of a certain race or a certain ethnicity or whatever. And, and I didn't know if that was also a thing in, in children's books. So like that, even animals, even in the way they're portrayed. And I don't know if that's what you so were that, trying that, to get at. That but. is true though. I mean, that is a very valid point because a lot of the time you can tell what race they are going for when they're trying to uh, portray an animal. And it, it might be harder to do in literature than it is in TV shows, but you know, the thing that came to mind um, immediately was the, the Skippy John Jones books, which are just, I've got a lot of issues with the Skippy John Jones books, but, um, tell us from, about it. What yeah, are what issues? are your issues? <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the other books, the grammars that I follow, Children's Lit World, um, which is a great account. Um, she does a lot of, re- she does a hashtag reconsider lit series. Uh, So she goes through books that a lot of kids read um, in school, like that are part of a lot of popular public school curriculum and kind of goes into why they're not recommended or why we should proceed Mm -hmm. with caution. So definitely have to shout her out because her account is great. It's at Children's Lit World. So it's by Judith Schachner. I've never said her name out loud, so I apologize if I am mispronouncing it. 
by Judas Schachter, and it's about a Siamese cat um, that basically he thinks he's a chihuahua, and he basically does like a Taco Bell mock Spanish type of accent in the book. And, you know, he goes on all of these adventures, but, you know, it's basically like a caricature of Mexican culture, which I do, I think is very harmful and is not an authentic representation of Mexican culture, obviously. So, so yeah, that's problematic because that's not a mirror or a window. (laughs) I'm actually really curious about that because I'm part of a Facebook group called Woke Homeschooling, which is trying to teach history through through literature that really is taking, like that focuses on the perspective of marginalized communities. And sometimes I hear people say, we're going to read the book anyway with a critical lens. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like, is that just bullshit? Is that just like (laughs) someone like trying to like mask their sentimentality with me? Like, no, 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 we'll still read the book. We'll just, you know, we'll unpack that racism. Yeah, I I encounter that question a lot because it is a question that comes up in the librarian community because one of the major tenets of being a librarian is fighting censorship, right? And never making things unavailable to people who want to read them, even if we find the content personally reprehensible. So that is definitely a fine line in the librarian community. Um, When do we just say, okay, we need to just, or do we ever need to say, okay, we just need to chuck this book, make it unavailable, weed it from all of our collections, Or do we say to people who try to check it out or want to look at it, do we say, you know, this book is problematic or is that leading people, you know, is that trying to impart our own opinions upon people and that's going to agitate people and say, stop trying to tell me what to think or what to believe, you know, and lead to complaints of that nature. Or do we just try to balance it out and, you know, maybe include a problematic book But then say if it was in a display in a children's section in a library and then surround it with non-problematic books so that when someone goes and, you know, might might encounter the problematic book, they are also simultaneously encountering a bunch of books that are uh, affirmative towards that community. So um, in order to balance it out, so to speak. So I don't really know if there is a right answer because to me, it was important to see problematic texts. It's important for me to look at them and see them to gain an understanding of just how bad some of them are. Because I think that, you know, part of the problem is like a lot of people think like, oh, racism doesn't exist. You know, racist books don't really exist. Books that that book wasn't really that bad. That portrayal of of Native Americans or Black people or Asian people in that book is not really that bad from what I remember. And it's not until they go back and look at that book that they're like, oh, wow, this was really problematic. Like, you know what I mean? It it gets diluted in your memory. So I can kind of see the benefits of 
exposing people to problematic texts, but I just don't want to, to foist trauma upon communities that have already been traumatized by it. I do think it's important for, for people who are not part of marginalized communities to look at problematic texts through that empathetic lens and to, you know, to gain that perspective. I don't think it's necessary for people who have already been exposed to trauma to art to further traumatize themselves by looking at these, you know, uh, looking at these problematic texts. I don't think that you should necessarily be forcing black children to read the N word and Huckleberry Finn or, you know, things like that, like over and over again. I don't really see what purpose that serves. I do think that um, it's important for people to, uh, to truly understand some of the, the the negativity that comes along with these texts, so I can I can see I can see both sides of the argument. Yeah. So okay, our next question is: so it's one thing to seek out books with diverse characters and experiences. Then the next step is talking about it, right? Like, how do you talk to your children about diversity or, or racial justice or feminism or any of these other issues that are coming up from that book? when reading to them, like during read aloud time, like how do you do that in your household and what suggestions do you have for other parents? Sure. Well, the great thing about being a multiracial household is that it's totally unavoidable. You know, there's no such thing as um, it's too early to talk about race. You know, a lot of people seem to think uh, because it comes up from the very beginning. Um, you know, there are a lot of studies. You know, there's there's one in particular um, that was published by the National Institute of Health um, from uh, out of the University of Delaware and a collaboration of some other um, of a, of a few uh, universities in the UK, showing that children, babies, start uh, expressing racial biases and and preferences as young as three months old, that they start to prefer faces that they feel are similar to their own face. And, you know, that, uh, so there, there's really no such thing as being too young to talk about race. You know, in, a, in our family, my children have already, know, you know, the seven-month-old can't talk yet, obviously, so I'm assuming that she noticed, but I know that my almost three-year-old has noticed, you know, grandpa has dark skin and grandma has light skin, and, you know, that it, they, they know that, that they're, I, I have two brothers, you know, we range, even though we're full biological siblings, we range in skin tone. So I have one brother that's darker than me and one brother that's lighter than me. And, you know, they, they've noticed that, that, you know, kids notice things like that and they want to know why, because they're just curious. And, you know, it's something that us black and multiracial parents always have to uh, think about is what people will see when they see our children, you know, my children, people might see them and think that they are just white because they have lighter skin. Um, my one child has blue eyes from her father's side. And it's, you know, people are going to make assumptions about them. And it's important for them to know that people in their own families might be experiencing different assumptions when they go out into the world from society about who they are and what they're like and what their character is just based on the color of their skin. Um, and that people might say things around them that are offensive about black people not knowing that they are black, you know, it's just going to be a different experience for them because 
racism is real and colorism even within the black community is real um so they might experience just a diff things differently from if they had darker skin and their relatives who have darker skin uh so you know there's that and that's just something that we that it's uh, it's like i said it's it's inevitable like you just have to talk about it because kids start asking questions um so i think that books are a really great avenue for talking about race social justice feminism gender identity, socioeconomic status, you know, disabilities, neurodiversity, people are, you know, kids want to understand things, I think, inherently, and they don't have negative, hateful ideas until people teach those ideas to them. They just want to understand why some things are different about them from other people and why some things are the same. And I think that, you know, sometimes if they're kids that are not part of a marginalized community, you know, white children in particular, their their mind might be a little bit blown to find out that uh, there are people who have experienced hatred or discrimination because of being black or Hispanic or Asian or uh, because they are a boy who likes boys or a boy who likes to wear pink and and sparkles and dresses and you know they 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 might be a little bit shocked to to find that out because it's just so so abhorrent to the idea of a child that that people would just be mean for these seemingly such you know arbitrary reasons um but obviously if you are a child from a marginalized community and you've already you know you're three years old and you've already experienced racism you'll you'll know through reading these books and i think it's important um again you know that the concept like we talked about before windows and mirrors you'll you'll know that there are other people like you who have experienced these things and your experiences matter um so you know i i think that early on, you really have to um, help kids place themselves in other shoes and develop empathy and talk about all these things. There are so many great books about there, you know, all the ones that I've featured and, you know, the Bookstagram universe is just full of awesome recommendations for talking about all of these subjects. And there, there is another uh, one thing, you know, going back to talking about human characters versus animal characters, there was another study um, from a, f- a few years ago out of the University of Toronto saying that uh, kids l- are much more likely to learn moral lessons from like empathy from books about human characters as opposed to um, anthropomorphized animal characters or you know things like it just it clicks a lot better when you see that it's a person who's having these experiences a lot of I think a lot of um a lot of authors and publishers try to water it down by featuring animals that are going through human-like experiences and they think it makes it like more approachable and more friendly but it actually appears to be the opposite that the message kind of goes like whoosh over their heads when it's not when they are not when kids aren't seeing actual other people experiencing these situations um fascinating i did not know that um yeah yeah. so laura what are some of your favorite children's books like do you have a top five no i it is so hard to narrow down to like i i don't think i could ever say my top five favorite children's books but i can say (laughs) like if you had to go out and buy five children's books that are hot right now like awesome books and you want to have kind of a well-rounded collection right now okay okay five books i could do that because you know it's like naming like your 
your favorite child. Favorite, just not yeah. Him. I don't have five children, so I guess I could do that pretty easily since I only have two. But um, if I had to say, if you had to go out, like right now, just buy five books on the bookstore, like in a like supermarket sweep type of situation, but it's bookstore sweep, I would say okay. Soulway by Lupita Nyong'o, Julian is a Mermaid by Jessica Love. Love that one. Yes. Bird Song by Julie Flett. Either Carmela Full of Wishes or Last Stop on Market Street by Matt De La Pena because there it's 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 a tie. I'm sorry, I cheated a little bit with that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was a fair question, Laura. <laughs> yeah. And Saturday by Ogemora. Because awesome. they are just all awesome, beautifully written, beautifully illustrated. I mean just like the cream of the crop in the children's book world. Right I only now, have two of those. So. <laughs> I cannot recommend them. I just, uh, they're just all so gorgeous. I could just look at like, I'm a sucker for gorgeous picture book illustrations and just, you know, you know, when you're just reading a book and you're like, wow, I could picture reading this 20 years from now, right, years right. from now, 50 yeah. years from now to my grandchildren. Like it's just timeless. And actually, Lupita Nyong'o does a beautiful reading of Sulway on bookmarks on Netflix. It's just cool. That's, that's awesome. So, that yeah, is those awesome. would be my um, recommendations. And if you had to go, I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes you're in the mood for a classic throwback, anything by Ezra Jack Keats or Faith <laughs> Ringgold, because they're like some, or Ashley Bryan, those are like the OGs of the picture book featuring black children world. And um, it's just great. They're great. They're classics for a reason. Great. Yeah. We'll, we'll list all of those on our show notes and on our website too. Yeah. And I also, you know, obviously highly recommend that, you know, because that every, everybody has their thing, you know, their hobby um, that they, that they spend money on and children's books are mine, but there are so many ways to get children's books for less than full price. And obviously as a future librarian, I'm a huge advocate of borrowing books from your local library. I know that that is very hard to do in some places right now because of the pandemic. Books are being quarantined for days at a time. Um, but, you know, libraries are trying so hard. They're really like doing the most to get get books to kids during these times. And so many great organizations like First Book, reach out and read and reading is fundamental. So many organizations just working over time to make sure that kids are getting books right now. Um, so really um, I try to highlight some of these organizations on my page. And I mean, if anybody ever wants to reach out to me and needs help getting books, you know, little free libraries, I just, there's just so many ways. And it's like, no kid should ever have to mm. not have access to books. But if people are, are looking for books, I mean, I have to say, you know, like I find a lot of my books through different library and resources like the Association of Library Services to Children and School Library Journal, International Literacy Association, um, and the National Association for the Education for Young Children. Like those are just all like professional resources that often publish book lists um, that are culturally sensitive and very timely, but at zero to three too. I can't forget to mention that one as well. Those mm -hmm. are all like early childhood focused and childhood literacy focused organizations. But I have to say like there are tons of blogs like Brightly, um, social justice books, uh, we need diverse books at the Lee and Lowe publishing 
blog and the Conscious Kid blog and Here We Read and, of course, A Thousand Black Girl Books. Those are all amazing resources for finding diverse books. A lot of them are organized by, by subject matter and they're just great. And that's where I find a lot of these, uh, these books in the first place. That was amazing. I know. I know. (laughs) We'll definitely put links of all of those on our website. That's a ton of great resources. I'm glad. I'm I'm more than happy to to send along information on anything too. Awesome. Thank you. So I just wanted to like, see if we can, to ask you like, because there might be listeners out there, people thinking like, well, what does this have to do with feminism? Um, And, and so I wanted to hear your thoughts, like, where, where do you see that intersection between everything we've talked about today, everything you've talked about today and all the work you do on, on diverse books and feminism and like how that fits together? Sure. You know, honestly, I think that it really ties in because one of the hugest issues that we face in finding diverse children's books is that there is a serious lack, uh, even though, you know, uh, again, like if you were to just use my Instagram account, for example, as a sample size and look at the books that I featured, you might think, oh, wow, there sure are a ton of books about black girls in the world. But when you look at the publishing world as a whole, you know, even just, I mean, it's actually pretty hard to find concrete statistics about this exact topic, because to be honest, you know, until very recently, you would think that no one in the publishing industry cared um, because it wasn't a hot topic, so to speak, to talk about diversity in children's literature. But I'm sure, obviously, there were actually a lot of people who cared, but it's all about, you know, who's demanding this type of information at any given time. Yeah. But, you know, now we know that at least according to, you know, there's a, there was a study done um, by The Guardian and The Observer uh, using information from Nielsen BookScan, um, using data from there of the top 100 best-selling kids books, I think, in 2018. And, you know, most of them featured male characters. They outnumbered female characters in more than half of the books that were surveyed and, you know, female or black and Asian and minority ethnic characters, which they abbreviated as B-A-M-E, were a lot less likely to have speaking roles. And, you know, children were also a lot more likely when selecting books to pick books with male characters or male dominated characters, you know, if there's more than one character. And, you know, there was another study done by the sociologist for women in society um, in 2011 that males are, you know, tend to just be the central characters in children's books. Um, and that even when the main characters are animals, that male animals are much more likely to be featured than female animals. And this really does send the message to girls that their stories are not as important and that their voices don't deserve to be heard. I mean, it's like effectively silencing them, you know, and saying like, okay, everyone wants to hear a boy story. You know, this is uh, boy stories are more exciting and more fun, which is interesting because it, it, it ties into a whole of the whole other issue of that girls are do historically have uh, performed better in reading in school than boys have, you know, and people tend to think of reading, you know, stereotypically as a girly activity. And that's kind of messed up too. You know, it's like, okay, well, we expect you to read more, but but you should only read about what boys have to say and do because right. it's more important. So, you know, it's just all kind of messed up. It's messed up for boys and it's messed up for girls and it's messed up for kids who may not identify as either a boy or a girl. 
And, you know, we just, we, we have a, a, an obligation as parents, educators, members of society to make all kids, regardless of what gender they identify with, or regardless of their race or religion or cultural um, affiliations or, you know, anything about them, any identity that they, that they fall under, they deserve to feel like they are worthy of attention and that their stories are important and that there's nothing wrong with them or abnormal about them, like that they are good the way they are and that it's important to be kind and empathetic to one another and to treat people who might be different from you with respect, to treat, you know, all other human beings fairly. Like, I, I just don't, that that's a feminist issue and it's just a societal issue. You know, this day and age, mm-hmm. it becomes more and more clear every day that that we need to be imparting these lessons upon our children. So I think, you know, there there is nothing more feminist than that, in my opinion. Yeah. To stress our equality and our, you know, our our humanity. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we uh, we close each episode with a little bit of uh, self care, I guess you could say. Um, we ask every, each other, um, how are we going to take care of ourselves? So um, I'll start by asking you, Laura. So h- what will you do to take care of Laura this week? Well, I. Um have been really getting into uh, taking super relaxing candlelit bath with a book. Nice. Uh, when we moved to the burbs, I said, that, like, I want a real bathtub. And I've got a bunch of non-children's book reading that I've got to catch up. Still books about books, though. I, you can either find me reading children's books or books about <laughs> children's books or books about libraries or books about reading in general. And um, right now reading uh, Freedom Libraries, which is about um, the civil rights movement in relation to libraries and uh, desegregating libraries in the South um, and that whole process, which is fascinating and a totally underexplored aspect of the civil rights movement so i am really enjoying that so candles plus wine plus book plus bath equals happy laura that's awesome good for you and i'm going to add that book to my list too freedom libraries thank you lisa what are you going to do to take care of my friend lisa this week okay on my ongoing journey toward accepting like imperfection and you know not becoming like a mental basket case full of anxiety I am, as always, focusing on letting go of perfectionism. And so my new thing, you can't just be like, I'm just not going to worry about making mistakes because like, what do you do? What's, what is your goal then? So my new thing, and I've been writing this on my arm every morning, is I'm just going to try to be as thoughtful as I can be. And so if I make a mistake, and the reason this is coming up for me is because I'm writing these lessons for kids and they're not perfect. And I feel really bad when they're not perfect. And I get really upset about my work right now. And I'm just trying to be as thoughtful as I can be. And if I'm as thoughtful as I can be and there's a mistake, I got to be like, oh, okay, there was a mistake, but I was as thoughtful as I can be. And so I'm just having to keep that as my mind because I'm nose to grindstone right now. I can't, there's no room for any extras, but I'm just trying to be as thoughtful as I can be. Good for you. What about you? How are you going to take care of my friend Lindsay this week? So mine's actually a repeat from one that I didn't do in the past (laughs) that I said I was going to do. This book I'm reading called This is Woman's Work by Dominique Christina. Each, um, Each chapter is about like different 
women we have within us. Um, and this, and then you have to do these like reflection exercises. And this, the one um, chapter I'm on is called the ghost woman. And it requires me to take 20 minutes to sit still before I do my reflection. And I haven't taken the 20 minutes, but right after this episode, we have a babysitter here and I'm going to take my 20 minutes and I'm going to be still and I'm going to do this exercise so I can continue through this book because it's awesome. So that's what I'm going to do. Wow. That's okay. very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Laura, so much. So yeah, much. Thank so you. Much. This was um, so much fun. Can you say again, you know, how can listeners find you? Anything else you want to promote about your work? Follow me at Laura's Little Bookshelf on Instagram. I post pretty much uh, everything that that I feel would be relevant to my audience there about, you know, whether it's children's books or advocacy work or other uh, things you can buy or things that you can read that um, are related to my mission. So follow me there for the latest. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about this topic. Our website is mommingwellfeminist.com and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at mommingwellfeminist. Let's have each other's backs this week and take care of yourself. Yeah.